Welcome to the Andrew Scutt Show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a very interesting human being by the name of Cassandra Spencer. Cassandra is a former U.S. Army public affairs officer who blew the whistle on Facebook back in 2017, went on to work as an undercover journalist at Project Veritas, and has just recently released a book titled Impact, How I Went Behind Enemy Lines in Our Struggle Against the Far Left. She has a super powerful story, and so I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Here we go. All right, we're live. Cassandra, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I've been uh, reading up and, and watching interviews of yours and stuff to get ready for this, and I'm excited to be uh, talking to you. Um, as uh, you know, obviously, you have a, a very interesting story, and I, I can't wait to, to hear you tell it rather than somebody else telling it for you as seems to be the, the theme. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, would you like to kind of introduce yourself and, and just kind of give an overview of your story and how, how you uh, got here all the way from, you know, back to when you first got working at Facebook and, and the whole, whole shebang? Yeah. So um, my background going out of college, I was originally a Army Public Affairs officer um, following my military service, I decided to start my civilian career and I ended up um, working as a contractor at a Facebook facility here in the Austin, Texas area. And so here I am thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to get my civilian career started. Like I got this contract job, you know, hopefully it'll then transition into a full-time position at the company. Well, about a month, two months into me starting to work at Facebook, I start to notice odd notes on the back end of accounts. Specifically, it seemed like it was always conservative pages. Um, and, you know, one, you see a weird note like one time and you're kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. Like, okay, whatever, move on. And, but then you start seeing it over and over again. And then you start like, looking like, what is, what do these codes mean? What does this code actually mean? And you dig and you dig. So eventually I ended up with a, you know, um, a stack of documents um, as well as screenshots from the back end of different conservative pages on Facebook, which I then turned over to Project Veritas. Um, I was fired from Facebook for my whistleblowing activities. And then I went on to become an undercover journalist for Project Veritas. Oh, wow. So, how did, you know, you got this job at Facebook. How did you first encounter these, um, th these notes on, on these pages that you said you were working in like copywriting strikes, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was completely, I was not looking for anything. Um, like I said, I handled copyright and I was intellectual property. So I would handle copyright and trademark claims, but occasionally you would get like a copyright claim from a political figure. And so, you know, I would do the ticket and, go through the process like I normally would. But then I noticed like in the same section, you know, the account notes section where it would say, you know, like if I had issued a copyright strike against an account that it was saying like IA live action, deboost live distribution. And I was like, huh, that's, that's weird. I had never seen that before, you know, and I would go through hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of content a day. So, um, you know, you see it one time, like I said, you can brush it off as like, okay, that's weird. 
but you start noticing a pattern over and over again. And then I would start to take note of, did I ever see this on like independent left-leaning pages or, you know, what, what's the pattern here? And it became a pretty clear pattern of censorship directed at anyone perceived as being right of center. Interesting. So this had nothing to do with copyrights at all then? I mean, they were copyright tickets, but while I'm looking at the account, like the page, while I'm doing the copyright claim, I started, you know, I would start looking and be like, okay, because like I said, I would deal with some easily on an average day. Uh, I would say two to 5,000 pieces of content. It would not be unusual Oof. Wow. for me to go through. Yeah, that's, that's a lot to sift through. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw some, definitely some weird stuff during my time there. Did you? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, what was the weirdest thing you saw? So I literally, the first ticket I ever had when I was working on the floor was an Instagram ticket. It was a copyright ticket um, of a foot fetish account. Oh. And it was just pictures of feet. <laughs> so wow. um, stuff like that, like weird, like hentai stuff, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of it was tickets from like Disney, like, okay, this person is illegally uploading a copy of Lilo and Stitch. They do not own Lilo and Stitch. So yeah. a lot of it was, you know, and stuff like that, you can go through that really quickly. That's, that doesn't take a long time to make a decision on, but yeah, I, I've had to sift through hundreds of feet pictures. <laughs> wow. That's, that's quite a interesting first project when you, <laughs> welcome to the job. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So when, by the time like these, uh, you were noticing these uh, de-boost like remarks, th these mm -hmm. were something that somebody else had put there. It, yeah. it sounds like then. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, cause it would have the name of like whoever the employee was who took the action on the account. And I noticed that there was this one engineer's name that was attached to all of these de-boost codes. Hmm. Um, but I could tell it was something that had been written somewhat automatically just because of with the frequency that I saw it, I was like, there's no way that this guy is physically sitting there and manually doing this to all these accounts. Right. So um, we actually found out the name of the engineer. His name was Danny Ben David. And um, eventually Project Veritas, we confronted Danny Ben David in San Francisco. Oh, really? <laughs> to ask him about the deboosting. Yes. Okay. How did that, was that um, while you were still at Facebook or? No, no, no. This is once I was okay. an undercover journalist for Project Veritas, um, okay. you know, we, because I didn't work at the the main campus at Facebook, but like I said, everything's connected. It's all online. And so I could see the name of the engineer, even though he didn't work at the same office that I did. So um, eventually we went and talked to several of these engineers as who were responsible for the code or um, internal reports where they talked about plans to censor, basically censor conservatives. They referred to them as trolls. Um <laughs> including like pretty mainstream conservative figures. Uh, I remember one of the examples they gave was Lauren Chen, um, who's like a commentator for the blaze. Okay. So it's not, not like an extremist figure in any way, shape or form. And she had made a video called why social justice is cancer. And uh, they viewed that as an example of troll behavior, that mm. video. Right. Of course <laughs> we, we like cancer here at Facebook. What, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> um so you uh wow that's insane um <laughs> i'm sorry i'm like trying to wrap my head around this it's it's just funny like you you hear the word troll you think of like 
somebody like calling somebody names or like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's just does not seem like it fits the definition of troll whatsoever. Right. And the problem is, is that they'll mix it in with like legitimate trolling, like what you're talking about. And then they'll be like, oh, some trolls, you know, they're, you know, just calling people slurs or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, that's trolling. But then they throw in like actual, like just conservative commentary. And they're like, these are other examples of insidious troll behavior, like memes that we don't like. (laughs) Come on. Memes never hurt anybody. They, They literally had something called a toxic meme cache. Really? Yes. Wow, that's got to be a gold mine. <laughs> somebody's, somebody's at Facebook just scrolling that that toxic meme cash feed, just laughing their ass off all day. Oh, I know. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so you're working at Facebook, and I had heard uh, in in one of your other previous interviews that you described the what working at Facebook was like and how it's a very diverse workplace, but not very diverse in thought. Can you expound upon that? Yeah. So, I mean, like if you looked at the floor of the makeup of, you know, the people who are working on my team, it was a very um, politically correct, like rainbow of people with, you know, different appearances, you know, different ethnicities, you know, different sexual orientation, you know, gender identification, very, uh, it was like a picture perfect, you know, political correctness, diversity ad, (laughs) but everybody thought the exact same way. (laughs) So when it came to having original ideas or thoughts, especially when it came to um, issues of politics in particular, it was a monolith. And at the actual Facebook building, there was literally, and I'm not exaggerating floor to ceiling, like propaganda posters of like, you know, different like leftist sayings and stickers like everywhere. And so it was like, it was literally like in your face, quite literally like all day, every day at work. What were some of the like posters of? Oh, what is it? Like, um, you know, like trans rights or human rights. Um, Oh, wow. Just like super direct. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, (laughs) what is it? No human being is illegal. Like just stuff like that. And I mean, these, these posters would literally, like I said, start from the floor and go up to the ceiling. No kidding. You said uh, like propaganda, like in that sense. And I'm thinking like, you know, Karl Marx quotes or, or something like that. It's like, nope, we're just, we're just getting right to it. Oh yeah. Like I remember there was one of the most popular um, stickers that were on people's laptops. Cause they actually encouraged employees to like put stickers all over their work laptops was uh, this machine kills fascists. Which, you know, on the surface seems innocuous, but what their definition of a fascist is, is uh, quite different from what actual fascism is. <laughs> Themselves? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Jeez, man. Um, that's, that's insane. So you're working at Facebook in, in, this, uh, in this hostile environment, you poor thing. Um, <laughs> and you are there. How does project veritas come into the mix 
So I had been noticing this stuff on the accounts and like, I didn't know what to do with it. You know, there's no internal like reporting mechanism within Facebook. Like, Hey, if you see something that you think is unethical at the company, you know, we encourage you to bring you forward your concerns. That's not very good for echo chambers. We don't, we don't. No, no. And so one day I was just on Twitter and I saw a tweet from James O'Keefe where he said, if you're on the inside of like any of these companies and Facebook was listed, you know, we'd like to hear from you. And so I emailed the tip line and I was very like kind of hesitant. I was like, Hey, you know, I kind of been seeing some weird stuff. I'm not sure if it actually is anything or not, you know, but, and so then, you know, someone ended up calling me and then eventually flew out to Austin, Texas. And then, you know, things kind of just went from there. Gotcha. Gotcha. And how long after like you started working with Project Veritas and I assume giving them some of this information did like, did that last with you at Facebook there? I know you, I know you got fired not to, not to spoil the surprise, but um, <laughs> yeah, um, that did happen. And I would say it was probably about six months. Oh, wow. Okay. I would guess about six months. Um, you know, th- to an extent I knew that I was playing with fire, but I certainly did not anticipate things happening when they did or in the manner that they happened when that did, when I did get fired. Hmm. So uh, how were you feeling the morning when you woke up before you got fired? Just, uh, just another day at the office. Yeah, I, I had, and ironically that was one of the days I had not been wearing a hidden camera because, you know, Texas weather is extremely unpredictable. And so all of a sudden it'd gone from being cold to it had been like, it was like 80. And so I just had on a t-shirt, you know, and it wasn't conducive to having a hidden camera on. And so I go into work that day and all of a sudden the manager's like, uh, we need to talk to you in the conference room. And I'm like, um, okay. (laughs) So (laughs) I go to the conference room and from there, there proceeds to be basically a two hour long interrogation They won't tell me what I'm being investigated for, what I'm being accused of, but they are trying to demand that I hand them over my personal cell phone, which is not company property, Hmm. and allow Facebook security to go through my personal phone, which ironically, there was absolutely nothing of value on that phone. But on principle, I'm like, no, you cannot go through my personal phone. Yeah, it's a little sketchy. (laughs) just a little bit. (laughs) They're like, Oh, well, you know, you can look over their shoulder while they go through your phone if you want. And (laughs) I was like, you're used to doing it all the time. Doesn't mean I want to. Right. I was like, um, no. And, and I even asked them because there was nothing on that phone. I said, well, if I let you go through my phone, does that mean I get to keep my job? And they're like, no. And I was like, no, you can't go through my phone. Why would I let you go through my phone? What benefit do I get out of this? I don't get to keep my job. So. Yeah, that person did not uh, did not pass their negotiations class before they got that job. That's for sure. <laughs> no, and like I said, this went on for a circular conversation for nearly two hours, and um, yeah. at the end, I finally said, "Listen, this conversation clearly is not going anywhere. Can I leave?" And I will never, to the day I die, I will not forget what they said is they looked at me dead in the face and they said, well, legally we can't detain you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, we'd love to. (laughs) Like I said, I, my background is as a military officer and I'm like, I have never, I I worked in the intelligence field. Never in my life have I been (laughs) 
subject to something like this, you know, oh my <laughs> this is bizarre. So, um, yeah, that was, that was what happened. I got escorted out by security. I wasn't even allowed to go clear out my desk. Um, for two weeks, they wouldn't even return the personal property that was at my desk to me. I had to actually threaten to call the Austin police department on Facebook in order just to get my personal belongings back. Like I'm talking like, you know, headphones and like desk knickknacks. Right. <laughs> why, why hold that? Just, just out of personal spite. I don't understand. I don't know. There was absolutely nothing of any like practical value there. It was, I, I think it was out of spite. Um, possibly out of like intimidation. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It was, it's been a strange situation and it's something that to this day, like I would love. And I think that's why they never, you know, tried to take legal action against me because I would love to see what the actual email chain involved in me <laughs> being fired. <laughs> what people said. <laughs> yeah. But troublemaker. Yeah. Not going along with the narrative, Cassandra. No, you don't definitely like not. <laughs> we tell you how to think. You're not allowed to do that for yourself. Oh, exactly. Um, so, so obviously they got tipped off somehow that, you know, something was going on. Like, mm -hmm. you have any idea how that happened? I think so. Yes. Um, my prevailing theory is I got fired two days after Project Veritas released their first investigation into a big tech company, which was into Twitter. Um, and all that was, there was no insider footage from that. That was all things that were gained from undercover journalists going in from the outside. And so two days after that video came, those videos came out, um, and James had made it very clear publicly that he w wanted to go after big tech, um, is when I got called into the office. So the timing of that did not seem to be coincidental, mm. um, if they, because they did, they would force employees to connect their personal Facebook accounts, which are, you know, on your phone to your work account. And so they possibly could have had access to my contacts. And like, even though James O'Keefe was not in my phone as James O'Keefe, mm -hmm. um, he was definitely in my phone and they probably could have seen that we had had text message conversations, even though ironically, the only text message conversations we ever had were literally a happy new year's exchange back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That's the entire extent of James and I's conversations via text message. Oh, you're guilty by association. <laughs> yeah. And so I think they just, cause they would obviously have access to his phone number from having two factor authentication on his personal Facebook account. Mm hmm. And so they just cross-referenced who had had contact with James O'Keefe. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That's my theory. Yeah. Anyway. I wonder how long, like, I wonder when that cross-referencing happened and they knew that versus like when, like they, they actually called you into that conference room and fired you. Like you, you mentioned it was two days after James O'Keefe said they're going after big tech. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if they knew a couple months in advance and just weren't doing anything about it. But then James O'Keefe said something. It was like, okay, we need to, we need to get her out of here. Well, and it was two days after those Twitter videos were published and those Twitter videos, I mean, they've been used in multiple congressional and Senate hearings they were pretty damning because it was where the practice of shadow banning was kind of first exposed where these engineers talk about how you can ban someone without actually banning them and just no one's going to see their content. So um, that was some of the stuff that was in those Twitter videos. And so when that came out, I think Facebook got scared and decided yeah. to do something about it, which uh, I got caught in the crossfires of. 
<laughs> but um, from my understanding, uh, after you were escorted out of the building, you made a phone call. And uh, c- can you tell us about how that phone call went? Yeah. So, you know, um, I called my parents to let them know that I had been fired from Facebook. And the first question that um, Doug, my father, asked me was, he asked me, was it worth it? And without even thinking about it, I was like, yes, yes, it was 100% worth it. Because what I saw going on at the company was so unethical. I had such a problem with it that in my mind, there was no doubt that I had done the right thing. Even though, you know, afterwards I was, you know, obviously I was unemployed. Um, I ended up on like food stamps for six weeks until I found another job because I'm an adult. Um, But, you know, it was extremely like stressful and humbling at the time because I was still trying to get my civilian career started after Mm -hmm. my military career had ended. And so it was very uncertain time for me. And it was scary. Um, It was isolating for a while. And it was a while before Project Veritas could really corroborate what I had sent them because, you know, I had come to them with this stuff. They didn't know if I was like a crazy person or (laughs) something like that. And so for months, it was kind of this limbo that I was in. Yeah, that's tough. But, you know, I I think that uh, speaks to your character, you know, saying that, of course, it was worth it, you know, they're doing the right thing is always worth it. Right. Like, oh, yeah. um, and I, I, um, I heard another one, one of your interviews, you recently, you, uh, you described yourself as having a justice complex. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I've been like that ever since I was a little girl. Um, in my book, I literally describe how at the age of 10, I led a revolt against my school cafeteria because they tried to make me work in the cafeteria. <laughs> And I was like, why should I work in this cafeteria? I don't eat the cafeteria food. I don't get free or reduced lunch. I'm at school to learn not to work in a cafeteria. (laughs) So um, I successfully did that. And I never had to work cafeteria duty again. That's fantastic. (laughs) Starting a revolt in the fourth grade. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you mentioned... uh, it took a while for Project Veritas to corroborate anything out of, out of, you know, the information you gave them. Uh, what, what did come of it? Um, so we released the story right before CPAC of 2019. Um, and that was basically the start of the Project Veritas Insider Program. Uh, we used that and then that became the inspiration and the um, genesis of that program. And now we've had whistleblowers come forward, not only from big tech, but from, you know, media companies like CNN, ABC News, that Amy Robach, Jeffrey Epstein tape, that was a big one. Um, you know, Border Patrol recently had an insider who came to Project Veritas. So it started this whole thing of people who saw something unethical going on at whatever institution they're a part of and being willing to come forward and risk everything, um, sometimes going public and going on camera, other times just turning over footage and documents, but to really expose what's really going on in some of these institutions. Wow. So you were the first whistleblower Project Veritas worked with. Yep. I was the first, the OG. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) It's funny. Uh, I, I don't know a ton about Project Veritas. It, it seems like that's a shame. Um, how would you describe that organization? So um, I absolutely, for me, aside from being in the U.S. Army, that was the most rewarding job I've had my entire career. Mm-hmm. Um, you're really working with other people who are passionate about making a difference, who are really passionate about what they're about exposing truth, because 
And this is something, you know, they, they teach you in like the core values of the company while yes, there is an element of deception in undercover journalism. You know, you will lie to people in order to get them to have a conversation with you. But what's important is that while you may lie to the person who you're talking to in order to get them to have the conversation, you never want to deceive the public. You always want to be sure that the information you are conveying to the public is truthful and accurate. And so that's why it's so important to get these people, you know, speaking these words out of their own mouths or with the case of insider stories, you know, you have documentation and undercover footage of like what it's actually like inside CNN to kind of back up all these claims. Yeah. No kidding. So, wow. So it's, um, doesn't Veritas mean truth? Do I hear that? Yes. Okay. It's a Latin word for truth. That's a, that's a cool name. Um, so, I'm sorry, <laughs> circling back on what happened with uh, the Veritas, but it, the story got leaked um, and, and it came out and everything. Um, the Facebook story we released, um, like I said, right before CPAC of 2019. Um, and then, you know, we had multiple insider stories and then I, I ended up getting hired as an undercover journalist for them eventually. That was what I went on to do. And then I went undercover. Um, I did undercover work into politicians like Beto O'Rourke's Senate campaign. Um, I, I think I met almost every single Democrat who was running for president in 2020, <laughs> including a weird story where I had to hold Joe Biden's hand for three minutes. That was awkward. Yeah. It wasn't very frail. <laughs> you know, for an old man, he had a death grip on my hand and I could not get my hand back. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have pictured <laughs> old Joe as, uh, having that. that yeah, he, he had some pretty impressive grip strength because <laughs> I remember I'm like awkwardly like trying to pull my hand back, and this guy will not let go of it. And I'm just like, oh my gosh! It's like because I know that there's a camera on me, and I'm like, I know that my boss is going to see this later today <laughs> once I send in this footage, and I'm like, oh, this is so awkward. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's insane! How did you end up holding Joe Biden's hand? Um, I was at a Joe Biden event in Iowa and, you know, I went and like he was going down and shaking people's hands. And uh, so I, I was tried to engage him in, you know, the conversation, however brief. But then as I went and he went to shake my hand, all of a sudden some woman who was like a climate change activist or something came in from my side and started like screaming at Joe Biden, like in his face for several minutes. And during that whole time, like this woman's just screaming at him and he will not let go of my hand. And I was like, <laughs> cause, and there were like cameras around me. Cause you know, it, these climate change activists, it's like the same people who go in and they try to, you know, they're, they're very far left. So they start sure. screaming at Democrats about not being like supporting the green new deal or oh. whatever. Anybody who goes about something in, the, in their primary thing is screaming. It's just uh, not a good look. Oh yeah. And so there's like cameras everywhere. I'm like, I don't want to be on these people. I don't want to be on like, I don't want the whole point of being undercover is that I'm not on camera. Yeah. And I'm like, I would like to get away and I don't want to keep holding Joe Biden's hand. And so I'm trying to like get him to release the grip on my hand, but he, he would not let go. Just wrong place, wrong time, huh? Yeah. It's yeah. just, you never knew what would happen in that job. It was never the same day twice. That is crazy. So um, you also worked on other stories at Project Veritas, mm -hmm. of course, as when you were an undercover journalist there. Um, 
and I specifically remember hearing you talk about one uh, influence uh, about Google and influencing elections. Can you yes. uh, talk about that and why it was significant? So um, that was actually probably, I would argue, one of the most significant stories of my career as far as undercover work. Um, we ended up talking to Jen Janai, who was the head, her official title was the head of responsible innovation at Google. Um, basically, what she did in, in actuality is she was in charge of the... Um, machine learning ethics for the company. So this was had to do with their search algorithms and, and things of that nature. So this Google executive, um, we sit down and we're having dinner with her, myself and a colleague, and she starts talking about how, oh, you know, we've been going through and, and training our algorithms. Like if, you know, if we had changed our algorithms would the outcome of 2016 been any different? Um, she talked about preventing the next Trump situation. Um, and mind you, this is 2019. So this is before the 2020 election. Yeah. Wow. And so that was actually cited by Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate, um, as well as several members of the House um, in some hearings that came up following when we released that footage. No kidding. Is there any... It just What happens when that gets brought up by Ted Cruz on the Senate floor, or anybody in, in that kind of setting? We're just like, eh, sorry. We're, we're oh, yeah. These these people, you know, because there's corporate, they're corporate mouthpieces who are there, um, and they're like, oh, um, yes, I, I did see that and, you know, they just, they, they kind of just tap dance around it or answer it awkwardly. Be like, no, Google's not trying to influence elections, even though like the executive is just saying it on camera. But of course, when you're sitting there in front of the Senate, you're going to be like, no, of course not. You're not going to be like, yeah, we're totally trying to influence the outcome of this election. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know, how more blatant can you get, right? Oh yeah. It was very like, She's speaking in whole complete sentences. Like <laughs> she's not being taken out of context. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, That's insane. Oh, just, just rattle off something short and do, do the sip. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Zuckerberg sip there. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're, I, they're just the awkward, um, like lizard person robot face. <laughs> I'm I'm very pale now that I live on the mainland. I'm originally from Hawaii, but I, I still cannot achieve that level of um, inhuman appearance as Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's impressive. He must work at it very diligently. He must. It, it is quite impressive. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, so you were the first whistleblower at Veritas. Mm -hmm. um, are, are you little little sidebar here? Just to kind of change directions a little bit. Are you familiar with the Brett Weinstein story? Um, yes. The evergreen college story. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was him and I might be conflating him with, with somebody else that spoke out in a university setting against, you know, some of this quote unquote wokeness. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I remember, like I said, it was either him or somebody else speaking out that said he had other university professors reaching out to him and saying, Oh my gosh, thank you so much for speaking out about this. Like somebody really needs to take a stand and do something about this, but you know, I can't because I'm going to lose my job and I need to support my family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have you had people at like Facebook reach out to you in any similar fashion? 
Um, I mean, well, that was kind of like the whole point of like, we started this and like encourage other people to come forward. So people come forward to Project Veritas all the time through the tip line. And I've, you know, I personally worked as an undercover journalist. What was so rewarding is after I came forward, when other people would come forward, I was able to then go in as an undercover using some of the information they gave and help corroborate their insider stories and help tell their stories as well. Um, and that was arguably like one of the most rewarding things I did. Like the Google store I just told you um, was actually started by a whistleblower named Zach Voorhees. Um, he came forward with documents about how they were trying to implement something called machine learning fairness at Google, um, basically altering the search results to reflect what they wanted reality to be versus what it actually was. And so that was how I ended up um, undercover with the Google executive was based off of the information that Zach had brought forward. Gotcha. So, wow. So you really, uh, I wonder how many whistleblower stories you're actually responsible for. I, I know that there's a few who like, you know, when I would meet them later on, they'd be like, listen, um, Carrie Porch, who was a CNN insider, he actually approached James at CPAC um, after he got up and told my story. And he, and Carrie told me, he was like, you know, listen, like that was I, just something struck a chord with me about the story. And that's what made him decide to come forward with information about CNN. Yeah, that's incredible. And so, man, just um, we, we need more people to, you know, speak out for what's right and that kind of thing. And but, you know, a lot of people don't, I don't think understand like what's going on. Like, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, mistrust in, in mainstream media and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but to some degree, like people still eat it up. Like people still, you know, vote based on it and everything like that. And, um, I, I, I just feel like, like, do you have any words of advice for, for average people who are like getting this and, and like have a sense that, you know, th some, something's amiss, but don't really know what, what's going on. Cause like, I don't know. It, like people are just trying to get by, you know what I mean? Like they don't have time mm -hmm. to do a ton of research and like all of this stuff. Um, I, I mean, I have, I know people that, you know, they, they say they know they're, you know, being lied to. So their idea of combating it is, you know, watching CNN and Fox so they can get a, a balanced idea of what's going on in the world. But like, that just doesn't seem like, like a good solution to the problem to me. Um, do you have any like words of advice for people that are like kind of, kind of feeling this and, and just don't know what to do? Well, I think one of the things is to always remain curious. Um, one of the reasons that I think that I was able to do what I did is because I, I've always been a curious person. Um, and I've always been willing to have my ideas challenged. I grew up in Hawaii, which is a very left-leaning state. I went to college. I began college at New York university, very left-leaning school. And so as somebody who was always, you know, somewhat conservative, how conservative people think I am <laughs> varies on where you stack me up against. I, I don't even know what that means half the time anymore, but, um, I always had my ideas challenged from the time I was a teenager, you know, up through my adult years. And that's a good thing, having your, your beliefs and everything like that. And be willing to, if you see someone's mouth moving and, and they're talking, like, unless it's like some very impressive deep fake, 
be willing to be like the guy at CNN, you know, just recently was talking about how his network creates propaganda and how like fear sells and they wanted more COVID numbers because, you know, and now they're going to switch it to climate change as, you know, it's basically panic porn. And so I think that being willing to keep an open mind that if somebody tells you something and they're saying it, whether they know they're being recorded or not, believe them especially if they're saying it over and over again, like that guy at CNN, he, he was quite clear. That's what he thought. So there was no mistaking at that point. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it, it's certainly something else. Just, I, I know you're um, obviously in all the work you've done uh, a big proponent in, in fighting uh, big tech. Um, what, what does that mean to you? And, and why do we need to fight big tech? Big tech is um, basically it's four or five companies that control such a large portion of our online discourse. Um, and they have a disproportionate amount of power. They are completely unelected. Like you want to talk about the government not having enough accountability. <laughs> These companies have zero accountability whatsoever. Um, and currently they all have a sweetheart deal with the government under section 230 of the communications decency act, which uh, makes it where they can't be sued. Um, and they're not responsible for what users post on their platform, but they can also, you know, silence whoever they want. Um, and you, they have to basically pick, are they a publisher like the New York times or are they a neutral platform like the phone company? You know, whereas like if I commit a crime using a Verizon cell phone line, Verizon is not responsible. Whereas if the New York Times publishes something that's false or defamatory, which they do and they are now being sued for, um, they are responsible and they can be and are being sued in court. So currently with big tech, there's no legal recourse for anyone. And so that's kind of where government needs to step in and take a stand against these companies. That's where our elected officials need to do something. Yeah. So you, you mentioned uh, 230 and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, now we're seeing, um, you know, anti-censorship uh, legislation coming up in, in Florida and Texas. Um, did you, what do you think about that? I think it's great that states are stepping up to do something. Um, I ultimately do think that this is a federal issue. Um, while generally I do think most things should be solved at the smallest government level possible, I think because of the nature of the internet, because of the nature of big tech, that that is an instance where um, federal legislation and federal action will be required to really crack down on this, but it is encouraging to see in the absence of our federal government doing anything about it, the States individually trying to step up. Yeah. It, it seems like definitely a step in the right direction. And I mean, you're seeing um, pushback against not only that, but just, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like people are, are getting more and more fed up with some of this like nonsense, right? Like, um, <laughs> I mean, uh, whether it be like, I, I don't know. It just seems like everything in, in the news recently is, is just, um, just very extreme. And like you either get people that, that double down on it or they're like, okay, wait a minute. I voted for what? <laughs> like, um, and and, and so the way I describe it is like, if you have this, um, this, this polarity, right. Of, of left and right, or, you know, whatever you want to label those things. And then in the middle you have, you know, this, this, point where you know call that the mainstream narrative right and it's been shifting left and left and left and left and left over time 
But the further it shifts left, and even though like that obviously has its challenges, the more people are getting displaced to the other side and are waking up to what the hell's going on. And, you know, it, it, like, I don't know, the, uh, the recent, I know there've been uh, multiple police incidents recently, but the one with Micaiah Bryant, when she, like that woman was about to stab someone like, right. Like, isn't that obvious? Like, don't we want police to stop someone from stabbing somebody? Like, it seems like a very legitimate function of the, of the police, but uh, you know, what do I know? I, I'm just a journalist. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, it gives me hope that like we see people standing up to, to some of those problems. There was a, a politician or somebody recently in the democratic party that came out and said that like wokeness is an issue, right? Yeah. There's been several, like it's, it's becoming such a problem where, um, even I would say people who are more moderate Democrats, more moderate liberals, they are getting assailed from the, their left flank by this, like, I want to say it's maybe 5% of the people on Twitter who are just very loud mm-hmm. and feel, like you said, the people who will show up an event and literally just start screaming at Joe Biden for three minutes. I can't stand Joe Biden. I think he's a terrible president, arguably probably the worst one that I've had in my lifetime, but I'm not going to sit there and like physically scream at him for three minutes. That's no. (laughs) Well, you're just a decent human and you know, that's no way to communicate ideas. Right. Like I, I just think, I just feel more than anything. I feel bad for Joe Biden. I think he should be like, you know, at the retirement home playing checkers. Like, I don't want to sit there and scream at this old man. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you have these people who it's like, they, you know, and I've experienced it myself, you know, aggressively trying to ruin my life. Um, going after my Tinder dates, <laughs> you know, if I, if I try to get employed anywhere, they'll go after that. And it's like, well, this is, uh, this is pretty cancerous. You yeah. know, this is not how a society should function because it, it, what's weird is that they then create these more extreme fringes, even to the right that they are trying to get rid of, but you're actually by pushing people out of society and like deplatforming them and not allowing them to have a voice, you end up creating the thing you hate, which mm-hmm. is kind of the, the irony of it is, you know, cause I'm not afraid to talk to somebody who has awful ideas because I know that my ideas are better and can stand up in a, in a debate or a conversation. But these people are so afraid to even have the conversation. And it's like, well, if your ideas are better, then you should be willing to have the conversation. So, so this is this is where my I, I've always I always come to this question. Like they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think these people don't want to have discussions and just shut people down because they know their ideas are dog shit? Or do you think that they they you know, do you think the road to hell is paved with good intentions? And they, they think this is, this is good. And their ideas are actually good. Like I, I have a hard time figuring out the answer to that question. There probably is no singular answer, of course, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. So I think you do have a certain um, small number of kind of elites who do not have good intentions, who know exactly what they're doing. And then you have the group of people who I'll just refer to as useful idiots. Um, I have been undercover with Democratic Socialists of America. I have been to many of their meetings. And 
a lot of these people, they're not necessarily bad people, but they genuinely think they are involved in some like some deep rooted civil rights struggle. It's like they, they missed out on the actual civil rights movement. And so they're trying to like compensate somehow. And they, they genuinely think that they are doing the right thing. And you just want to be like, no, no, you're not. It's like, I wish you could see this, how this actually looks. But um, so I think it is a, a combination of the two people. Um, I think when you have the people who are in power, it's much more insidious. And But when you have the people who are executing it out on the ground, um, like I said, useful idiots. I'll just be honest. Yeah, they're, they're more just the pawns that are feeding whatever bullshit they're being fed. Or yeah. eating whatever bullshit they're being fed. That, that, that seems to make sense. Um, yeah, because, I don't know. It, it's like the way some of these, you see some of these people behave, it's like, and, and on both sides, to be fair, like extremists yeah. on both sides, like mm-hmm. you, it's like, wow, you are you are in a cult, my friends. Like, I don't know if you know it, but everyone around you can see it. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I remember when I was with Democratic Socialists of America. One time, they had a discussion where they literally made it where in their meetings um, they called it a progressive stack, where the order that people were allowed to speak in was based off of your victimhood class, essentially. So, like, if you were like a a black trans Muslim female identifying person, you would be at the front of the line. And if you were like a cis straight white male, you'd be at the back. But then they got into an internal argument because then they decided that this wasn't progressive enough because then they were allowing white men to have the last word. So then they had this whole (laughs) internal conflict in their big general body meeting about what they were going to do because they could not figure out how to solve this problem. There, there's Cassandra. There's no other answer than to just get rid of the white males. They're, they're just, exactly. They're really problematic. We need to dispose of them immediately. Absolutely. It's totally Ex- except for uh, the Burger King guy, he can stay. <laughs> all, all the all the other uh, all the other mascots, they need to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very that's a salacious mascot you have there. I, I'm a, I'm a Cleveland Indians fan. What can I say? Uh, Chief <laughs> Chief Wahoo is a dear friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> but um i know you gotta go uh mm-hmm. i got one last question for you um you've got this book out and uh obviously you know we're, we're looking ahead um wh- what do you see in your future what, what do you got planned well i can't i have to keep my cards somewhat close to my chest um but yeah. we do have things in the works i've been fighting here advocating for different things whether it be big tech legislation. Um, another issue I'm passionate about is family court reform. And so I'm going to keep fighting um, for what I believe in, whether it's as an undercover journalist, whether it's, you know, eventually running for public office, I'm going to keep fighting and I will not be silenced. I love it. Keep fighting the good fight, Cassandra. I will. Thank cool. you, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, absolutely. Anytime.